fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. When our guest today was a young medical student just learning the ropes, she did a rotation that changed everything for her. Palliative care, care that focuses on providing relief from the symptoms and stress of serious illness, was a relatively new specialty, but one that immediately drew her in. She found herself asking questions she'd never thought about before. What is a doctor's obligation to a patient she cannot cure? What should be the balance between the technical and humanistic sides of medicine? Does a good doctor promise to do everything to save a patient's life? Or is she honest about medicine's limits? Thank you so much, Dr. Sunita Puri, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. Well, Dr. Puri's new book is That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Dr. Puri is the medical director of the Palliative Medicine and Supportive Care Service at the Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center of the University of Southern California, where she also serves as chair of the Ethics Committee. She graduated from Yale University and studied at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, so that you know, you know you're, she's smart. She completed medical school and residency training at UC San Francisco and fellowship training in hospice and palliative medicine at Stanford. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and JAMA Internal Medicine. Check it all out at her website, sunitapuri.com. That's spelled S-U-N-I-T-A-P-U-R-I. Well, the book opens with you as a five-year-old, and your dad is having the first of what you say were many conversations with you and your brother about death and impermanence. Well, you know, I can barely remember what I did yesterday, much less conversations <laughs> I had when I was five years old. So, so talk about what you recall from that discussion, and why do you think it stuck with you so strongly that you still remember it all these years later, Sunita? What's interesting is I've always had a very vivid memory, and my earliest memory was from when I was two years old. So by the time I was five, I'd actually had a collection of memories, um, a lot of them involving my father taking care of me because my mother was a resident in anesthesiology at the time, and so my father was really my guide and my best friend. And... I remember this conversation really vividly because as a five-year-old, I was looking at the sky and just how beautiful it was, the sunset that my dad and I were watching, and I said to him that I just wish that the sky always looked this beautiful, and he immediately started telling me how everything in life is temporary. Everything in life is actually just like this beautiful sky, beautiful but temporary, and beautiful in part because it is temporary, and we must find a way to understand that and appreciate it. And I remember it because as a five-year-old, you know, I I was watching Scooby-Doo and just, you know, playing with teddy bears and reading that great book collection, The Bernstein Bears. I had no concept or no way to wrap my mind around what my father was trying to explain to me, but the way he spoke the tone of voice, the earnestness with which he was trying to communicate me, communicate with me, that's why this memory stuck out, not only because it was a departure from what we had just been doing, which was, you know, eating hush puppies from Long John Silver's, but it was also (laughs) just, seriously, my mom would have killed him for feeding me that stuff, but that's what we were doing. 
And then it turned into this incredibly profound moment. And it was his tone of voice, the change in the topic of the conversation, and just the, the profundity of what he was saying that stuck with me. And it was the beginning of a much longer set of conversations that he and my mother would have with my brother and I about what it means to live an impermanent life. When you have those kind of conversations with children and on an ongoing basis, it makes it that much less scary when people in their lives actually pass away. I mean, my first relative within my sort of immediate, you know, extended family, my maternal grandmother passed away when I was six. And I think, you know, we had uh, animals growing up. And so I think I had a hamster who passed away before my grandmother did. And so we had conversations around uh, death and dying at an appropriate level, I'm sure, because by the time I was at the funeral with uh, all my family there, it wasn't really that unusual or strange. I mean, I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I am glad you brought up the example of pets, because I think that when we lose a pet, that is often many young children's first exposure to the idea of death. And, you know, I think that our animals are very powerful teachers in a number of ways, but even in the ways that we allow them to die naturally instead of prolonging their deaths, which is what I see happening very often with human beings. So sometimes when I'm in really high stakes discussions with patients and families, and I have to help them understand what a natural process of dying looks like, I often point to the unfolding of death that happens with animals and how they stop eating and drinking and how they sleep more than they're awake and interactive with us. So I think both for young kids first learning about life's temporality and for fully grown adults trying to understand what dying might look like for their parents, I think the example animals can be hugely important teachers for us. Take us to that time, as I said, when you were a young medical student and you did this rotation in palliative care. So talk about how that that really just changed everything for you as a doctor. Was there an aha moment or was it something that happened more organically through the rotation, Sunita? You know, when I was a fourth year medical student, I was really contemplating seriously leaving medical school after all of that work. And the reason was that I'd grown up with my mother as a role model of this ideal physician who was both highly, who was both highly technically skilled as an anesthesiologist, but who was also humble enough to pray with her patients when they wanted that before going to surgery. And I went into medicine wanting to be that sort of doctor, but found that so much of my training kind of stripped the humanity and the focus on human beings away from what I was able to do for them. And what I did was highly technical and scientific, which is extremely important, but I wasn't so much getting the satisfaction of looking upon and really treating my patients as whole human beings. Then I did the palliative care rotation, and I will never forget sitting with the patient who I called Donna, who I write about in the book, and she was a lady who had been on dialysis for many years and had made a very brave decision not to do dialysis anymore because she felt that the quality of her life was actually getting worse with dialysis. And when I was sitting in the room with Donna and listening to a very talented palliative care physician talk to her about what she really wanted for herself at this critical juncture in her life, that was my aha moment. 
I looked at how he was talking to her and how he was drawing her out and helping her to tell us what she valued most and what she envisioned for herself instead of a life-prolonging therapy. And I had never seen a doctor talk to a patient with such openness and such a willingness to meet her exactly where she was in her experience of her life and in her thoughts about dying. And when I saw that, I realized that rather than being drawn to everything I had been taught in medicine, I was drawn to this negative space of everything I hadn't been taught, including how to talk to a patient about a serious diagnosis, how to walk them through what dying might look like, and how to really focus my training and efforts on improving their quality of life, however they defined it. So that was really, I will never forget Donna, and I will never forget that interaction because it changed my life. That Good Night is the first book written by an American palliative care doctor, which seems hard to believe, actually. In a very personal way in the book, you reveal what it actually means to have discussions about a patient's goals and values at the end of their lives. So talk about how you learn to have these sensitive conversations that often involve really complex emotions and and spiritual beliefs. Much of how I learned was from watching palliative care doctors who do these conversations well. And I also learned from watching other clinicians who maybe didn't do them as well. So I took both examples and tried to model my approach to conversations based on both the good and bad examples before me. Um, I think much of how I learned to do these discussions was also trial and error and trying different ways to connect with people linguistically and learning when I should take one approach versus another. So, for example, if I, you know, early on in my training, I might have rambled quite a bit in my conversations and tried to be the one who spoke the most in the meetings because I felt like families and patients wanted to hear the most from their doctor. But as I went on, again, through that process of trial and error and watching doctors who do these conversations well, I actually learned that the key to the discussion is to practice silence and listening Mm. and let the patient and family talk. And one of the most powerful questions I learned was not to go in the room and launch into an overview of what was going on for a patient medically, but rather to ask them, tell me what you know about what's going on with your health. And that way I could hear from them in their own words what they had taken away from the conversations they'd had with other doctors about their diagnosis and their treatment plan. And what that setup does in a discussion is immediately give you an opportunity to help fill in the gaps. Because in my training early on, I would go in and just start talking about what we could or couldn't do for someone with, for example, cancer. And sometimes I I neglected to realize that they may not have all the information that I had about their diagnosis. So being silent and listening and asking questions that put the patient and the family in the driver's seat is both a way for them to feel seen and heard, which is so lacking in our medical system right now. And it's a way for me to know how to guide a conversation. And I really learned those sets of skills from watching people who did it well and watching people who didn't do it well and learning my own language and style as I saw more and more patients.
Coming up, the conversation continues with Dr. Sunita Puri discussing her new book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the Eleventh Hour. And later, Jonathan Carmel joins the conversation to talk about his new book, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. Thank you for listening, and please like iHub Radio on Facebook. I'm Charlie Dyer. Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. We're talking about Dr. Sunita Puri's new book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Talk a bit about why open and honest communication about dignity and suffering with patients and with their families is so important in in the process here. I think the terms dignity and suffering are hugely important when we discuss things like a serious illness with our patients, and they're also hugely absent from medical education. And, you know, when I ask people about dignity and suffering, they feel almost relieved that they've been given a space to talk about that. And I think that our medical system is so focused and our training is so focused on doing the next intervention or ordering the next lab test. And those things are so important, and I'm not trying to minimize their importance, But I am saying that the technical and scientific aspects of medicine must exist to coexist with the humanistic elements. It's the humanistic elements that our system and education system in particular have caused to atrophy because we don't give those things, including communication skills, adequate attention in our training. And so I don't fault the lack of discussions about these things. I don't fault my colleagues for it. I think it's a system that needs to change. And... And I think that that might lead to better futures for all of us, including our patients and families. Well, medical care certainly in our country is suffering from severe depersonalization, as you just talked about. They're focused on uh, treating and trying to figure out the uh, the biological mystery to be solved here. And you write about that in That Good Night. So what can medicine in general learn from the principles of palliative care that you've taken away in your years of practice, Sunita? I think that many of us go into medicine wanting to be the sort of humanistic scientists that we get to be in palliative care. But I think our system, the depersonalization comes from having very little time with patients um, and from not knowing how to have these sorts of discussions that can really change the direction of someone's life and their care plan. So I think one of the ways that we can improve how we care for people is to give physicians and nurses formal training on the principles of palliative care early on in their training and better training in communication skills around high-stakes topics like what somebody would want at the end of their life. Because I think the more comfortable we feel talking about these things and the more empowered we feel to do so by having formal training, the more we can even try to fit those discussions into even very compressed clinic appointments and make them regular check-ins rather than, some, than topics that we completely avoid until we're in the midst of a crisis. Because I think that's what happens now. And I think that's why end-of-life care is a crisis in our country is because we treat it like a crisis rather than something that should be discussed well before the crisis arises. But we need to empower our physicians and nurses to take those discussions on by training them adequately and giving them adequate time to have those discussions. 
Well, many patients turn to spirituality when faced with an advanced illness, but many physicians, getting back to the depersonalization here, struggle to discuss spirituality with patients, given that this is a highly personal and sensitive matter. Sunita, talk about how your upbringing, as we talked a little bit about, you know, when you were a child, talking about with your dad, the impermanence of life, and how that has helped you to discuss spirituality with your patients. I think I was very lucky to have the examples of my mom and dad because both of them are scientists. My mother's an anesthesiologist and my father's an engineer, but they both have this extremely deep reverence for the divine and for spirituality. And they showed me that those two things, medicine and spirituality, can sit side by side instead of being antagonistic opposites. I think in medical training, we get such little exposure to how to talk to someone about their spiritual beliefs and to have any understanding of how spirituality might influence a patient's health and outlook. And I think that's a real mistake because a lot of people, even if they are atheist, have a set of spiritual and existential struggles that deeply influence their experience and their decision-making, especially when they're faced with an advanced illness. And so I think... You know, having grown up with a mother who prayed with her patients before taking them to the operating room, it was never a foreign concept to me to pray with patients or to ask them openly about their faith. I think because faith and spirituality are personal for physicians, too, that it may not be the most comfortable topic for them to discuss openly with patients. But I think that's why we have other essential team members like chaplains and pastors and other folks who are in the hospital and clinic setting to help us have those discussions. But I think my hope for the future is that we learn again more in medical education about how to talk about spirituality in a way that feels safe for the physician and for the patient, and how to mobilize resources, including the chaplains, to help understand where a patient is spiritually and how that impacts their health. I've had countless patients tell me that they were so grateful to have a chance to talk about their faith when I asked those questions. And I also think for me, some of the most meaningful connections I've had with patients arise out of discussions around faith. You describe dying as a messy, imperfect experience and suggest that people who are dying are not necessarily enlightened teachers of life as they're often portrayed in books and movies, but rather that they're just simply trying to continue living the, the, the best way they can. Talk about what you have learned from caring for patients facing the end of their lives along with their family, Sunita. I think one of the most powerful things I've learned is that when someone is dying, they are still very much alive. I think in our country, we have an image of dying patients as either being bastions of wisdom to bestow, as as you kind of alluded to, um, or as people who are just lying in a bed waiting for the inevitable to come. And I think dying patients are still profoundly alive. And when, as I write about in the book, when I worked as a hospice physician making home visits, I would see people who were slowly dying, but still very much alive still clipping coupons, still bickering with their spouses. And that was a profound lesson for me because I think we still do have much to learn from people who are facing terminal illness, 
But I think when we take away this gauzy image of them as teaching us how to live well and only allowing them to be seen in that way, we are taking away who they are as whole human beings. It's not to say that the dying can't teach us how to live, but it's also to say that the dying are still living and are still trying to make their way amidst this messy, imperfect human experience that we're all in together. Dr. Sunita Puri is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Check out our website, sunitapuri.com. That's S-U-N-I-T-A-P-U-R-I. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's been a pleasure. Coming up, Jonathan Carmel joins the conversation to talk about his new book, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. I'd like to know what you think of conversations. Drop me an email to charlie.dyer at ihubradio.com. And be sure to like iHub Radio on Facebook while you're online and tell all your friends about the digital difference in the Coachella Valley. I'm Charlie Dyer. Thank you for listening.